At the green grass level, we recognize that we've got to make a conscious effort to make golfers feel welcome. That was one of the things that I believe we missed in the 90s. We made a lot of hard golf courses, a lot of challenging facilities, but we didn't really create a safe place for people that were new to the game to come in, feel welcome, not understanding etiquette, not understanding even where to begin, not even understanding how a golf shop lays out and, and who do I check in with and is it okay to stand here? Do I bring my clubs inside the golf shop? Do I leave them outside the golf shop? A lot of those things that cause people embarrassment, we need to be able to address those early on, and we are doing that, to create safe ways for them to learn the game, feel like they belong, make their way from the putting green to the range, and ultimately, maybe for just one hole or two holes at a time until they get comfortable, but give them ways to have success and feel welcome at the facility from the very beginning. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we talk to the influencers, entrepreneurs, disruptors, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. I am Colin Weston, your regular host, but today I am not going to be your host because for the third time now, we have a guest host, and it is one of our return guests, Mr. Rich Katz. Rich and I have been talking about this for a while, wanting to get him on, and he said, I got this fabulous guest. I said, well, that's great, but here's the thing, Rich. I want you to have the conversation with him. And he said, that sounds great. So here we are today. So I am going to step aside. I'm going to turn over the platform to Rich Katz. Not even going to introduce our guest today. I'm going to leave it all to him. So first and foremost, Rich, good to see you. Good to hear you again. Welcome back to the Mod Golf Podcast, and take it away, my friend. Thanks so much, Colin. I don't even get that intro at the dinner table, so it's appreciated very much. There you go. It's my pleasure. I was a guest a couple of years ago, and and that went smoothly, so I guess I earned my stripes here. But what I'd really like to do as guest host is to make this conversation with Mark Mattingly, I'll introduce him in a minute, very informative, very entertaining, it's my style, very practical, and very educational. Mark Mattingly, who's Executive Vice President of Landscapes Golf Management, has been in the industry for a long time. I'm not saying Mark's old because he's got a lot of modern twists in him, but there are some insights or plenty of insights that Mark has to share with us today. Landscapes Golf Management is one of the foremost operators of golf courses, resorts, and country clubs in the United States. And it's my pleasure to converse with Mark Mattingly today. We've gotten to know each other really, really well. And I could honestly say unequivocally that Mark has one of the industry's best minds when it comes to operating golf courses and country clubs. He's a veteran. As I mentioned, he's got really good modern day perspective on how to efficiently manage golf courses to profitability. So let me turn the podium over to Mark to get rolling. So fasten your seatbelts, boys and girls, because here we go. Mark? Rich, thank you. Appreciate that. That's a very kind introduction. Looking forward to the conversation. Oh, no, I I am too. I've been looking forward for a few weeks since Colin invited us on. So let's get rolling here. So Mark, can you first as an intro, just take us through your journey in golf? Not too long. We need to be mindful of of everyone's (laughs) time here. And what is Landscapes Golf Management all about? What are its origins? Well, just a little quick background on me. Um, I got in the business back in 1991, so a little over 30 years ago now, as an assistant golf professional. Uh, I had a four-year degree coming out of college and decided to pursue golf as a uh, profession and went through the ranks in sort of traditional fashion as an assistant pro and a head pro, but got really fascinated with things even beyond the, the golf shop and the teaching and the programming elements of the golf operation and really wanted to understand not only the food and beverage side, but agronomics and the financial aspects of it and got really leaning toward corporate golf and uh, got involved with a golf course management company for the first time in 1998 and followed that path for about five years, then stepped out of corporate golf into um, member-owned private club operations as a general 
general manager for them and pursued that for a period of time. Moved on in about 2007, sort of mid part of my career to work with a golf course marketing concept company, travel a 10 state region uh, supporting that concept and got really involved in the sales aspect of golf and, and programming and marketing. And in 2012, Landscapes Golf Management was looking for a, a regional operations manager. And I wanted to get back a little bit to my roots in, in total operations, not just focusing purely on the, the marketing side of things. And so I joined the team at Landscapes in 2012. And in 2014, Tom Everett challenged me and said, well, you've got a little bit of sales background and a lot of operational background. And our business development chair was not filled at that point in time. And he said, how would you like to give that a shot? That happy accident, if you will, or experiment started about seven and a half years ago. And so far, so good. That's still what I'm doing today. So that's how I came to be in the, in the chair I'm in today. I do work a little bit with our operations team on, on analysis of certain projects outside of the scope of business development. But by and large, day in and day out, I'm, I'm talking to clubs and owners, operators, boards of directors, city government officials about our services. So that's what I do. And then landscapes, from that part of the story, going back sort of a similar timeline in the early 90s. Landscapes began investing in golf courses, becoming an owner. One property led to two, led to 10, and even as many as 20-some that we had there in the early 90s and into the early 2000s. And as owners, we decided we needed to have some operational expertise. So Bill Kubley, our founder, said, well, if, if we're going to own these, let's hire a few people and build a small team internally just to look over our own assets. And that's really where we built our initial systems and processes, benchmarking and built our senior team unit, if you will, that was looking over those properties on, on Bill's behalf. And it wasn't until 2007 that we took on our first outside client. There was a small club on the south side of Omaha that said, hey, we like what you're doing. I know this isn't something you normally do, but would you give us a hand? And so we offered some assistance to them, and that was really our first third-party client. They're still a client of ours today, about 15 years later, which we're proud of. And we have a, an additional 45 or so third-party clients like that today and 10 properties that we still own and operate for our own selves. So we have about 55 clients in all spread across 22 states, along with two international clients. Oh, that's terrific to see how you've helped grow this this landscapes golf management business, along with Tom Everett, who you mentioned, who's the president. It's funny, Mark, going back to our journeys here, you know, a little nostalgia never hurt anyone. I remember several years ago, I was with Annika Sorenstam in her office, and I asked the question, how did you get started in golf? And she said, my dad made me pick up trash on a golf course and, and fix some bunkers. You flipped some hamburgers in your day, right? Oh, there's no doubt. It, when I started back in 91, I wasn't allowed to touch the uh, cash register ring in golfers for nearly a month. My initial training was in the snack bar. I had to master hot dogs and crackers and coffee and donuts and, and everything else. Uh, we ran that really literally out of a cigar box with a little tax cheat sheet, if you will, next to the calculator. And that was my beginnings in golf back in 1991, long before a point of sale system existed, I'll tell you. We've come a long way, Mark, We've come since we operated way. out of a cigar box. I mean, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know, we golf have. courses That's are fun. now run like the businesses they are and kind of feel weird busting the union. I remember when the golf pro owned the golf shop, owned the driving range and the pro shop was making more money than the owner. Here come these experts out there and all of a sudden ownership is even more profitable. And, and that's kind of landscapes foray. But I wanted to spend a little bit of time. We'll talk a little bit about current events. And we all know there's a labor shortage out there in the marketplace. And yes. I'd like to spend the bulk of our time today so you can give an industry insider perspective on what landscapes and what the industry, more important, is doing to grow the profession. And if you grow the profession, you grow the golf game in and of itself, which is on fire right now. If you grow the golf game, then you're going to grow the profession. We all know without smart professional operators, 
the Callaways and the TaylorMades, and they don't even exist at all. So it's hot right now. We're kind of at the peak of where golf is, not in the Tiger Woods heyday, but thanks or no thanks to COVID. Is it going to flatten? And, and what can the golf profession do to protect against the flattening of the curve of participation levels? And what's landscapes doing? That's a big question, but let me take a shot at that. So I think we do have the perspective of time. You mentioned the Tiger Woods era that was you know, roughly early 90s to, to 2005 when he was at his peak and we were growing as an industry. And I, I think there were some opportunities missed there. I think we've learned from that. And in, in retrospect, I think we're better positioned to capitalize on this next bump. And as you said, it's unfortunate it took a pandemic to do it, but we may as well um, take advantage of the interest that we see in front of us today. And there's a lot more programming in place today um, than ever before. One of the things that we certainly didn't have the last time we had a surge like this was this off-course vehicle interest. You know, And I was reading an article recently that NGF had put out just demonstrating the blend between off-course interest and, and the overlap between purely on-course interest. And just noting that of the almost 37 million total golf participants today, about 12 million of those are off-course only right now. 12 million do both and 12 million are, are on-course only. And so there's already some of that migration happening and an opportunity to take that latent demand that 12 million feel that are on the uh, off-course side and bring them to our green grass facilities. And so we're, you know, we're thankful for that uh, innovation from Top Golf and Drive Shack and indoor simulators and standalone driving ranges and the work that they do to provide people access, sometimes an hour at a time when they don't have four hours to play, but to generate that interest and give us a pipeline to be able to maximize this opportunity. So that's certainly a difference today that we have to our advantage that we didn't have the last time around. You know, at the green grass level, we recognize that we've got to make a conscious effort to make golfers feel welcome. That was one of the things that I believe we missed in the 90s. Uh, we made a lot of hard golf courses, a lot of challenging facilities, but we didn't really create a safe place for people that were new to the game to come in, feel welcome, not understanding etiquette, not understanding even where to begin, not even understanding how a golf shop lays out and, and who do I check in with and is it okay to stand here? Uh, do I bring my clubs inside the golf shop? Do I leave them outside the golf shop? A lot of those things that cause people embarrassment, we need to be able to address those early on, and we are doing that, to create safe ways for them to learn the game, feel like they belong, make their way from the putting green to the range, and ultimately maybe for just one hole or two holes at a time until they get comfortable, but give them ways to have success and feel welcome at the facility from the very beginning. We're ready for that, not only just at landscapes level, but nationally, I think we're all aware of that need. Talking about nationally, let's focus on what I call the alphabet soup of golf, the PGA, the NGCOA, all these acronyms that are confusing to some, but not to others, obviously. So it's kind of their responsibility in many people's minds to lead the way with respect to the mandate to grow the game. But they also need to grow the golf profession from a numbers and knowledge standpoint. After all, if the golf profession doesn't grow, there's not enough people to go service the increase in demand. And you mentioned that latent demand being at an all-time high. So let's start with the PGA of America. What is it up to nowadays, you're an insider, in showcasing golf as a viable profession? And, and what in your mind should happen so there's not a substantial dip in qualified professionals to service a growing consumer base? So if you could expand on that, that would be very enlightening, given your position. Sure. No, I mean, my pleasure. And again, I'm going to share it from my perspective. I know 30 years ago, 
I wasn't aware that a PGA professional was a full-time job. I really thought that was sort of a summer gig where you're teaching a few lessons. I didn't realize I could make a career of that until sort of the 11th hour. And uh, I was happy to know I could and was able to, to take advantage of that. But I think our exposure today is so much better. The understanding of, of not only what's being shared on the PGA Tour at commercial breaks, but what's available as, as you search the internet and look at the PGA website today, a better understanding of, of all the avenues that are available today. And, and one of the things that's changed over time is they now have a PGA affiliate program that you can get involved in. That wasn't available uh, when I started 30 years ago, but that is an opportunity to at least get started, uh, sort of dip your toe in the water into the program. You can advance through level one towards your class A certification. There's three levels as you make your way through if you move your way out of affiliate into associate. And an associate effectively is the level that I came into uh, years ago. That was really all there was. You could either come in as a, a college graduate or not. There was four existing PGM programs, professional golf management programs at that time. Today, there's 18 of those programs throughout the United States. There's 18 accredited universities um, that you can go through that track. So that's its own four-year degree where you can focus on golf. So again, that's expanded a lot from four to 18 over the last 30 years. There's the affiliate program that allows people to get a sense of what it might be like to go down the PGA Class A track if they're interested in that, but they don't have to go all in yet. So that's an opportunity. And I just think the PGA career consultants that we have today do an excellent job as well. Uh, one of the things that's uh, recently changed is the new PGA job board. They've sort of opened that back up. There was a time that we had so many qualified people looking for jobs, we didn't have enough jobs to place them in. And so we actually limited the exposure of job openings to folks that had the proper credential set, if you will. So you had to identify five states that you might be interested in working in. You had to do uh, submit your resume. And if that matched the needs of the owner, then you would receive a job posting. But otherwise, you might not know of an opportunity in your area. Well, they've, they've relaxed that now so that we're really fully transparent again. And it's a nice digital platform and you can really see opportunities all throughout the country. Maybe it's something you aspire to and you're not ready for yet. Maybe it's something that folks might have assumed that you're overqualified for, but it fits your lifestyle needs today. And so now everything is back on the table. So I think just from a communication standpoint, it's really excellent today within our industry and, and people are seeing those opportunities. You know, what's, what's really neat is, Mark, I don't know if you know Sandy Cross at the national level of the PGA of America. She's in yes. charge of diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And the PGA is starting to look even more like mirroring the composition of America. Right. So that's always nice. There are some stats there about gender equality in the PGA uh, headquarters, diversity, and that is... Very different you, from the early charter of the PGA of America. I'm proud to say you would see that in my home state of Indiana on our current board of directors as well, mirroring that same thing. So. Yeah. So golf is moving in that direction of, of inclusiveness, which is really nice to see. And, and the PGA of America is doing a wonderful job pushing the envelope that should have been pushed years ago. But then it's funny, we go into perfecting the product. And without a product or with a shabby product, guess what? People are going to say, no, 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 I'm not going to react like I've typically reacted. And that's booking tee times time and time again. I turn our attention to the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America. And I've, I've always said to Red Evans, the CEO of the GCSAA, my favorite program there is something called First Green. Maybe you could share a little bit about First Green and the pipeline it presents to the profession, because I've always posited that superintendents are unsung heroes. Absolutely. I'll do what I can. 
to share that. You know, as I understand, a first degree, uh, you know, that goes back to about 1997. It's more recent with Golf Course Superintendent Association taking that over in, in 2017 with their acquisition. But the program goes back now, better part of 25 years, and really focuses on STEM education. It's an opportunity to get in schools and get kids exposed to really the science, the technology, the engineering, the mathematics that's involved in these learning labs that we call golf courses. And it's getting kids out there to really see what that profession is all about and and get excited about it. Kids from kindergarten all the way up through 12th grade are able to come on and do hands-on experiments on the golf course, tests that, that give them credits in the classroom as well. So they're able to test water quality, collect soil samples, identify plants, perform mathematical activities. And so I think it's an exciting program. We know that that's something at the grassroots level with landscapes and, and again around the country where it's getting more and more difficult to find people that are interested in, in making the agronomic side of things their career path. And so one of the most difficult positions with Phil is really just a crew member today, You know, much less an assistant superintendent and a superintendent, which we desperately need, but just those core staff members are difficult to fill. And just uh, some recent stats that we compete with, those folks are oftentimes plucked away from us from landscaping crews or construction work and, and even food and beverage from time to time is plucking those people away. So the sooner that we can get them excited about it versus just being another job that they could do, but something they can be passionate about and grow into as a career, I think the better. We talked about without golf course operators, Callaway and TaylorMade would be just a sliver of their selves. Without superintendents, you know, golfers would rebel because you're only as good as the quality you put forth. And I remember the NGF does a survey every year. Why does one golfer play one course over the other? And what typically ranks number one, Mark, you and I have talked about this before, are playing conditions. Number two is playability. Number three is personal service. And number four is price. So if you nut the conditions thing, you got the greatest leg up. If you nut the conditions plus the playability, which could be design or pin placements or pace, you're two notches up. Mm -hmm. And then if you actually, like you said, create that welcoming environment, you're three notches up and price doesn't really matter as much. And that's the great equalizer. I think we're saying the same thing. The GCSAA has a wonderful opportunity through First Green to cultivate the next generation of highly qualified superintendents, construction foremen, because that art and science blend of the superintendent's world is so cool. And we're actually getting a lot of turf managers for football fields, soccer fields, parks and rec getting into the art and science of golf. So we're attracting people in that way as well. But it's not just the PGA of America. It's not just the Superintendents Association that we talk up. There's also the National Golf Course Owners Association and even the PGA Tour. So what the heck's on your mind, Mark, about these organizations and what they could do to make the sport even more appealing to business people of all ages to join the golf workforce? Well, like you say, we've talked about the importance of these associations as much as possible, not not working in silos, but working in cooperation together to make this more appealing and to let people know what a fulfilling career. I mean, I'm, I'm three decades in now. I, there isn't anything else I'd rather do. And I think we need to get that message out there. For many years, when I was going through the program, we were told, hey, this is a tough road. Many of you aren't going to make it. Know what you're signing up for. It was sort of trying to talk people out of it. And I think we've we've turned the corner and we need to be in a different mindset today because it is a wonderful career. And um, these other organizations play a, 
a big part of that. You know, you mentioned the uh, NGCOA and just kind of looking at the programs that they make available for their membership of golf course owners in that owner association. And um, just a few highlights that you can even find on their website, just work that they do in advocacy, you know, resources and representation all the way up to Capitol Hill, hospitality training programs that they have for their members to enhance what they're able to do at the grassroots level at their properties, um, the research that they provide, preferred partner networks, uh, initiatives and diversity programs that they have as well. Not every golf course owner is going to have a management company like a Landscapes, but they have these tools and programs to help enhance the experience of their employees, of the customers and members that they serve. NGCOA plays a part in making those things available and making them more successful. And, you know, I think you touched on something earlier that to the extent that we can all be more successful from a golf course presentation perspective, playability and and service perspective and, and make price a little bit less sensitive, not that I'm advocating for raising prices of golf, but to the extent that folks will invest in their local golf course more and comfortably do that, that allows us to make more sustainable jobs for people that are interested in this career. Thus, we can provide better service and consistency and playability. You know, one will feed the other. And so we have to act first and really overachieve sometimes with lesser resources right now and demonstrate our commitment to them. But I think if they will invest in us in the terms of spending more of their time and resources with us, we'll be able to return that to them many times over. And, and, you know, you mentioned the PGA Tour as well. And I'm just thankful for all that they do during those commercial breaks and other programs they do to really help tell our story. Everything from teaching to to agronomics and, and programming and the fact that golf is a game for life. I was introduced to it by my grandfather and as a recent grandfather myself, I've already got the little plastic set of clubs for my grandson, Jordan, and looking forward to introducing this to him as soon as I can. But they do a nice job of telling that story and I think inspiring people in a visual format. And I want to leave the uh, CMA out as well. I mean, they perform a tremendous service. They have about uh, 2,500 clubs today in which their 6,800 members are plugged in and really working the, the service side most often on the private club side. But the work that they do there in programming, food and beverage, which is a huge part of the golf experience today, they just do an excellent job and, and they've got to help be part of that leadership as well, continuing to develop teaching resources and, and increase their exposure and involvement and making sure that they've got a sustainable pipeline of new people coming into their side of the business as well. You mentioned you're a new grandfather. That makes sense. You're young to be a grandfather, but you're also a father of seven. We're going to get to that question as of how you handle your household. And okay. even if you prefer cake, cookies, or donuts later on in the segment and in a fun type of way, just to end with some rapid fire questions like your dream foursome, I'm probably giving too much of it away, but let's get back to the staffing item. So landscapes, golf management, in a lot of cases, other management companies are only as good as the people it hires. And it's only as good as the people it trains. So you've been in this business seemingly forever. You're not that old, but playing your part in staffing from sourcing, onboarding to training. So it all has measures to guard against staff leaving the industry. Staff retention's key. What's going on in those walls of Landscapes Golf Management and, and other management companies and other golf courses and country clubs? What's that process look like to keep those in the industry engaged so they don't become insurance salesmen or encyclopedia salesmen? I'm glad you asked. It does come back to our core values, and they're, they're not hard to remember. In some ways, I, I suppose they're basic, but you know our, our core values are five in total, and, and that's just to do the right thing, to take care of each other which I think you'd see in the tagline of our logo, which is culture first. That's all about taking care of each other. Finding a way 
leading within the industry and being the best. Those are our core values. And that culture first piece sort of speaks to this point about keeping people engaged and, and interested in, in our company and in the industry for the long term. And, and one of the best ways to address that is not only the interview process, obviously we're looking for people that share our cultural values and the importance of taking care of each other, but also just the onboarding experience. We've put a lot of thought in the last few years of what's the best way to make sure in the same way that we talked about a safe way for people to enter the golf course and understand where they go and who they're supposed to talk to and how things work and feeling safe. We put a lot of emphasis on the employee onboarding experience as part of their overall employee journey throughout their time with us to make sure that they feel welcome. And um, I was looking at one of those announcements that went out today for a member of our accounting team. And each time we bring somebody on, no matter where they are in the organization, we celebrate that. And if we can come by and stop by their desk and say hello, we'll do that. If not, we'll send them an email or a video message and let them know that they've joined a really special team. So some of it's just the way we start. But to add to that, Throughout our time for the last 15 years or so uh, with Tom Everett's leadership, we've really focused on fun in our organization. So that goes to what happens after day one and week one. Is it a fun place to work? Is it a stressful place to work? I, I would say it's the, it's the former. So we adopted 15 years ago the fish philosophy, which you're probably familiar with, which comes out of the uh, Seattle fish market. Their core principles align well with ours, and, and their four principles are just simply to be there, to be present in the moment when you're speaking to somebody. Don't just write off a conversation. Really be engaged in what somebody's saying. Make their day play. That's the fun element of it. And choose your attitude. Decide that it's going to be a great day today and, and start your day that way. And so those align well with who we are as an organization. And so that's what's going on day in and day out. And we have a bulletin that goes out each week that's um, spearheaded by our president, Tom Everett. Uh, he believes this to his, his very core, and we do as well as a result. So this is a big part of our company culture uh, day in and day out. We've also recently in the last three years developed an employee voice committee to make sure that we have folks that are in the field serving in that capacity, giving feedback to our senior leadership, um, not only within our company, which is Landscapes Golf Management, but our sister company, Landscapes Unlimited, on the construction side so that we're talking to each other and they know really what the goals are of the organization. And they're getting feedback from the field, from the employee voice committee about what their employee journey feels like today. And are we doing a good job? I mean, it's really sort of a live test group, if you will, and giving us immediate feedback on how we're doing. Mark, you're probably the first and only guest on the Mod Golf podcast to ever mention the Seattle fish market. <laughs> so well, I hope um, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I'd bet the farm on that. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Mark, let's address the elephant in the room here. The stigma of working in the golf industry, low pay, long hours. So if I'm a guy or a gal considering getting into the golf industry as a profession, what do you say to me? How do you make it attractive? It's a good question. I, I'm happy to say, again, I don't mean to always go back to where I started, but it, it is my perspective. And so when I got into the profession, really the track was to become a class A1 head golf professional. That was it. That was really the pinnacle of the opportunity. It required the ability to be a, a really fine player. It was going to require a lot of hours. And in many cases, you were going to have to wait in a holding pattern in that assistant pro level for quite a long time for the gentleman ahead of you at that point in time, ladies today. But at that time, it was a gentleman 30 years ago and had to wait for that gentleman to retire or the opportunity wasn't going to be there. Well, that's quite a bit different today. And I think 
think my answer would be some of the positions available are going to require more of your time uh, than others, but you're going to have the opportunity to work in a number of different fields that just weren't available uh, to me when I started. So everything from on-course to off-course to sales rep opportunities to working for national management companies like what we do. There are leadership positions throughout the PGA as well, but it really does depend on what type of work-life balance you're looking for. Rich, it really is going to come down to working this out with your significant other as you're looking to uh, build your life together, perhaps build your family together. There are so many opportunities today, whether you want to pursue that head golf professional track and, and live in a, in a particular community and be there for the next 10, 20, 30 years, that opportunity still exists. That's still being done well today. But there's also opportunities to work on a national level with the PGA of America. If you prefer, you can work uh, in an organization like ours that has a lot of PGA professionals up and down the ladder of responsibilities throughout our organization. You can work your way into more of the general manager track. If you want to pursue the total club experience today, it's, it's not limited to just being the head pro, but you can move on into director of golf and general manager or multi-site manager. One of the expressions of that that I see is that when I got in the program, there was really only these class A certifications one through eight. So we were all A, but eight was an assistant golf professional and one was a head pro. And there was a few opportunities in between there, but not much today. That goes all the way to A24, which just demonstrates all the different opportunities throughout the organization, at least on the PGA track that I'm most familiar with, that people can find success. And so I think there's a enough diversity out there of opportunity for somebody to really enjoy themselves. And some positions are more lucrative. Some are more rewarding in the sense of, of work-life balance and being able to kind of live out your dream. If I may add to that, golf is an $84 billion annual economy. The indirect annual economy of golf is $181 billion. When I say indirect, I mean, you can transfer your skills as a GM, director of golf, assistant professional to something that's adjacent to golf, but involves golf, like golf real estate, golf travel, golf technology, aerodynamics in golf clubs. So it just doesn't stop at the golf course level. But we all must remember without sophisticated management. These golf courses are not run like the businesses they should be run. And they run the risk of going into receivership. And that's not something we want, which is a perfect segue to what Landscapes Golf Management does. And that I'm finding, and you may be too, Mark, bias aside, more and more golf course owners, including municipalities, of course, are turning over their businesses to professional management companies. Why is this the case? Outsourcing and privatization are, are buzzwords, but the reality is outsourcing and privatization are ramping up. It's becoming more rapid and, and even the norm versus the exception. Agreed. And when I'm talking to, as I mentioned, whether it's individual private owners, municipalities, boards of directors that are considering this for the first time, there's always some apprehension there to, so to speak, turn over the keys and, and trust someone else to care about your business as, as much or more than, than you attempted to do. And yet what we're able to bring and, and why I think this is becoming so much more appealing is that if I just think of the landscape story, I, I mentioned to you that we sort of practiced with our own money in those early days for about 15 years. We made plenty of mistakes. That's how you learn. Now, you don't want to make mistakes on anybody else's money, but it's okay when it's yours. And uh, we learned from that before we ever hung our shingle out and began offering services to to other people. But today, one of the main things that we're bringing to the table is the ability to efficiently and effectively navigate difficult waters, to work through changes in the economy, 
struggles that the property may have when we arrive there in terms of their cash flow, maybe the debt load that they've taken on at some point in time. How do I navigate difficult personnel issues? I may have made a capital improvement that was a little more than I could bite off some time ago, and I still haven't been able to catch up to that. How do I reorganize? And so we're able to bring that experience now of, of more than 30 years to bear and say, we've been there. We've done that. We know how to navigate through that. We're not going to take a, a side road here and end up in a worse place. We're going to help you get back on track to where you need to go. So we're bringing that experience to bear. We're bringing together centralized services. So whether that accounting, human resources, legal, marketing as examples of things that we can do in-house rather than having those individual talents as part of the payroll burden at the facility level. So there's that centralized opportunity to take some of those cost burdens away from the property and bring that expertise. There's national buying power where we're buying from multiple properties at a much preferred rate to what an individual golf course can do. So those are just some examples of reasons why people bring us in. It's ultimately going to come down to can we improve the bottom line and can we improve the service and programming experience at the facilities as a way to achieve a better bottom line. But initially, some of it is just the opportunity to save on the expense side in those early days and then begin to turn around the culture and the programming and the revenue engine of the facility and help them grow their way out of any difficult financial position they may find themselves. So I think that's why it's become so attractive, especially coming off of pre-COVID, more than 15 years of folks waiting for the other shoe to drop. Can we ever get back to what it used to be in the 90s? And a lot of people had deferred maintenance and had pursued cost cutting as a way to try to cut their way to prosperity. And uh, there was a lot of folks in some tough situations. And we had all those programs in place to really benefit them as COVID returned some interest to golf. Mark, you and I have had a lot of water cooler and lunch and dinner conversations about just the foundation or bedrock of business. And that's how do you acquire members and guests and how do you keep them? And keeping them is really important because we want that lifetime value to go up. But we spent a lot of time together in private talking about the acquisition of golfers and, and marketing and the role that plays and, and the role data plays. And if I remember correctly, Landscape's very sophisticated in that area. So Rich, no, I appreciate that question. And it is something that we have really focused in on in, over the last five years. And we recognize that one of these centralized services that was going to be so valuable was the, the marketing aspect and, and not always marketing externally to bring in new customers, but even the marketing of what we're doing at the private code level internally. So whether that is internal communications throughout the facility or whether that's communication externally to invite more people to come be a part of what you're doing, the marketing piece is, is huge. And so we recognize that we needed that support. We deliver it even today. Scott Wellman is our uh, director of marketing and revenue management. And he works strategically with all of our properties to help guide them through best practices. We have best practice calls to help them share ideas across the portfolio and, and new tools. But in addition to that, when we first started down this path, um, we brought on a, a gentleman by the name of Ross Liggett, who was uh, our initial director of marketing and revenue management, actually hired our current director today, Scott. What Ross recognized about two years ago as he was providing some of this strategic advice out in the field, and whether that be website related or point of sale or outbound email or social media marketing in particular, because that's now more than 80% of the way we communicate with our clientele internally and externally, 
he was providing great advice and we had general managers and, and even some of our salespeople saying, well, I'd love to do that, but I, I just don't have the time. I have so many other responsibilities here at the property. I, I'll try to do that late tonight when I go home, but during the daytime, I, I, I just don't have the time. And so he spun off a supporting group by the name of Metolius and uh, Metolius works with uh, over 20 of our properties today within our portfolio. And that application is really the combination of data aggregation and centralized marketing execution. And so Ross and his team, again, former landscape leadership person there and still a great partner of ours, works with our clubs and with others to be able to help them be able to get that messaging out in a clear and concise way, consistent across all platforms, happening on a regular basis, every 48 to 72 hours maximum. They're getting fresh content out there. It's all speaking across all the platforms from their blog posts on their website to emails that are going out to the membership, to their social media communications. All of that is being routinely executed and really taking some of that burden off the plate of our day-to-day operators in the field. In addition to that, Scott and his team have developed a custom CRM platform for all of our properties to use that allows us to do a better job to follow up on membership inbound inquiries and folks that are interested in taking tours of the facility. Same thing is true with golf outings and um, non-golf food and beverage type events. We've got those programs in place. Uh, We're working with a new partner from a point of sale system as well that we think is really going to lead the industry going forward. And those are just a few examples, but we're using people and technology on the HR side. We're doing the same thing even on the agronomic side. Many of our superintendents as possible are now starting to get GPS systems hooked up to their spray rigs as an example of where technology plays a a role there because that's freeing up time for them. They're more efficient from an application perspective. We're seeing up to 15% savings in chemical applications per year by using the GPS technology rather than the old system that oftentimes was was manual on and off where we've got waste. And that's giving us better turf conditions. It's given us better use of our resources so we can reinvest again in people and other important assets on the facility. Mark, from what you just said in the marketing sphere alone, there shouldn't be any wonder why golf course owners should not outsource management to a sophisticated team. So before we get to, we'll call it personal rapid fire questions for Mark, so you can get to know him more as a person than a business person, because our profession is, is full of a bunch of real people. I've got so many more questions for you about programming, especially, and we can get really creative there, but I'm going to hold off on those for our Mod Golf YouTube video conversation. So let's do some rapid fire on a personal basis. You ready, pal? Sure. Yeah. All right. So your dream foursome, who's in it? It's going to be me. I got to be there. Tiger Woods. I got to have Tiger. Gosh, who wouldn't? I mean, he he really was coming on the scene as I started my career. So that I'm a big Tiger Woods fan. Phil Mickelson's got to be there. I really love... I love Phil. I love his game. And I'd love to have Bubba Watson there because we may need some tears, you know, a little bit of fun. I want to see a guy shape the ball like none other. So that's my foursome. Not one of your seven kids? (laughs) Oh, now you put me on the spot. Well, which one would I pick? (laughs) That's a good point. Good point. Let's move on before we get in trouble. What's in your golf bag? And let's keep it (laughs) G-rated. All right. I've got, uh, let's see, driver, hybrid, or or both Titleist. I've got a uh, Shrixon three-wood. Shrixon irons, Cleveland wedges, and, a, and an Odyssey putter. It's an eclectic blend. Any good look charm sitting in one of those pockets? No, sir. No. 
Don't we that need all the luck we can get? I need some. If you've got one you can share with me, I'll take it. I'm not going to go there. You mentioned seven kids in your family, or I mentioned seven kids. That's that's like one more than the Brady Bunch. Is, is there an Alice around there? <laughs> oh, my, yeah. My wife and I have joked about that. We could have used one. But no, we've got five girls, two boys. Most everybody's uh, out of the house today. Their, their age is 35. My oldest, my youngest is 21. But we've got three married, one engaged. We've got one grandson, one grandbaby on the way. And they spread out from Indiana up to uh, Chicago and all the way out to San Diego. Uh, my furthest away is, is my Marine, which is probably important to mention her on Veterans Day, but she's uh, stationed in Okinawa, Japan as a Marine. I don't know how you keep it straight. So we're just going to move on to your motto in life. What may that be? I can't wait. Pretty simple. I was never the best golfer. I was never the smartest, but I would say go where others won't go and do the work others won't do. It's just that simple, quite frankly. If you're willing to go where other people balk at and you're willing to do sometimes the dirty jobs that others say, hey, I don't think that's for me, you'd be surprised how far you can get in your career. I better write that down for my own edification. (laughs) Cookies, cake, or donuts? Rank them, baby. Cake. I am a big frosting fan. I could just about scoop the frosting out and leave the cake aside. Cake first. Cookies. I love the dunk cookies. So cookies is my number two and donuts would be three. That's probably a question I should have asked because I don't know if they could see you on this Mod Golf podcast, but you're pretty svelte. Uh, that's not a pickup line in a bar. Moving right along, you live in Indianapolis. Are the Pacers or the, the Colts ever going to make the NBA Finals or Super Bowl, respectively? I tell you what, the Pacers are a little upside down right now on their record. So I, I would take anything around maybe a second round in the Eastern Conference playoffs would be a success this year. I don't think we're ready for the uh, finals, but we'll work on it. How about that? As far as the Colts go, my wife and I are season uh, ticket holders this year for the first time. We thought we'd give that a go, and the obligatory uh, Jim Mora playoffs comes to mind. But anyway, we've got some work to do to make the playoffs. I would not say we're Super Bowl ready just yet. Peyton Manning's hardly coming out of retirement for you, so there's no (laughs) way you can scalp those tickets. If you weren't in the golf business, what would you be doing? And it's okay if you say Wendy's Fry Guy. Yeah. No, I'd probably be selling real estate. My dad was a, a broker in real estate and insurance both, but I found real estate more interesting. And um, that's probably what I'd be doing today. Something in, in the way of uh, selling homes. Favorite golf course? This is, again, probably everybody's perhaps, but Pebble Beach. You know, I had the opportunity to play there about 20 years ago. I hope to go back uh, someday soon. But I, I would say from a national standpoint, that's one of my favorites. Locally, if I can give a little plug to my friends here in Southern Indiana, but love to play uh, the French Lick Resort, both golf courses down there, the Die and the Ross Golf Course. We love to go down there to French Lick, Indiana, home of Larry Bird and um, stay at the West Baden Hotel. So that's locally my favorite. Pacers could use Larry Bird. <laughs> yes, they can. They have not as a GM, not as oh, a GM okay. either. Okay, fair enough. He's one of the best small forwards of all time. And you, know, you mentioned Tiger Woods, Mickelson, and even good old Bubba. Are one of those your favorite tour players of all time, or are you going to go off the board for 500, Alex? I'm going to go off the board posthumously. Payne Stewart was just one of my favorites. We all know how tragic that was. I know right where I was standing when that uh, news came on the television and we watched that plane go across the United States. But Payne was one of my favorites, still is today. I love to look at his golf swing and his style and just who he was as a person. So that's one of my favorites. You own a pair of those knickers? I don't. I don't. But I tell you what, no one wore them any better than he did. So no one's tried since either. I'd pay good money to see you don those. (laughs) (laughs) Moving right along while I'm still um, safe and alive. Your last supper? I'm going to say generically Italian. 
again, I, I love carbs. I don't get to have them very much anymore, but something heavy on the carbs, heavy pasta, heavy bread, some great meat sauce. It really doesn't matter the dish, but tie in in any form would do it for me. Best career moment? Oh man, I might be living it. And I, I don't say that lightly. This is probably the, the favorite part of my golf career so far is what I'm in right now with the company that I'm with. But if you want to pick other moments in time, I was able to shoot 69 once upon a time on my home course in my early days as an assistant. That was a pretty proud moment. And about 20 years ago, I, I won an award for general manager of the year, and I'm still proud of that. So there's, there's a few other things that have happened along the way, but I'm sort of living my best days right now. Amen, brother. Last but not least, final words of wisdom you want to leave listeners with? You get into this industry, and this is, I'm sure, cliche, but you need to get into it because you, you love to share golf with others. Not necessarily because you love to play it. That's great too. That's probably why you love it is because you learned to play it perhaps as a youth, or maybe you took it up later in life, but you need to love to share it with others. And that makes what we do, at least from a golf management day-to-day standpoint, a pleasure. It is a game for life, as I as I mentioned earlier. I'm looking forward to sharing that with my grandchildren. With raising seven, I was sometimes a little too busy to do it with my kids proper, if you will. But now with grandkids and life slowing down toward the tail end of my career, I, I hope to have a lot more time to share that love with my kids and my grandkids. And I think that's what I would say, that if you're going to get in this business, you need to love seeing other people have that spark in their eye and, and really have joy in experiencing this game. And if you love to do that, you'll go the extra mile to provide that programming and all that onboarding and all these technology pieces have all been developed to help people better understand and better fall in love with the game the way we have. So that's that's what I think is most important. Mark, this is more amazing. This has been more amazing than I could have ever imagined. You've enlightened me. You've enlightened the listeners. And we look forward to hearing more from you in upcoming days, years before you retire, <laughs> as well as from Landscapes Golf Management. So for fear of me being accused of giving you a shameless plug, how do listeners get in touch with you? Feel free to give that email address because you know you're going to get bombarded. Okay. Well, absolutely. Please reach out to me anytime. You can certainly find me on our website, which is www.landscapesgolf.com. My email address is M, as in my first name, Mark, and my last name, Mattingly, M-A-T-T-I-N-G-L-Y, at landscapesgolf.com. Mark, this has been completely enjoyable, entertaining, practical, informative, and educational. We love it. So we'll see you on the back nine, pal. Okay, sounds good. Thank you, Rich. My pleasure. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more compelling episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen in. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on our homepage to hear about upcoming episodes and to enter our latest golf product giveaway. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks very much for joining me. Bye for now.